0: 8, 14 through 17. Um, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Again, rather, the Spirit you receive brought about, brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our Spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, we must also, in order that we might share also in His glory. This is the word of the Lord.
1: In, this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. For several weeks now, we've been in this series and as I begin to think about this title, I begin to think about the inflection with which we say that sentence and all the different implications that come with the, uh, the emphasis that we put on the words within that phrase and how it radically changes the definition, the meaning and the way that we process the trouble that we have. Depending on how we say it, it can be a prophetic warning something that makes us fearful, depending on how we say it, it can be an explanation uh, related to our geography. In this world, you will have trouble. Depending on how we think about it, it's just a a reality, it's a a promise. You will have trouble. It also kind of invokes a a musical that I was in when I was about 12 called The Music Man. Anybody know that? Oh, we got trouble right here in River City. With a capital T, that rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. Oh, how I wish the trouble that we have was simply a pool game or a pool hall. But indeed, Jesus, in being good and great and gracious and kind, was preparing us for a reality and for a hope and a promise that would cause the streets to be lined and filled when he rode in on Palm Sunday and caused him to receive a king's reception in its its cloak of humility as he came in on on a donkey. And they said, Hosanna, this is the one who will be able to wipe the tears away from our eyes because of the trouble that we have? So over the course of the last few weeks, the teaching has been amazing. And I I begin to think, Lord, what what can I add to this conversation? What can I say that hasn't already been said? I mean, Tim Mackey spoke on Wednesday. (laughs) Mic drop, right? Where do I start? Where do I end? Then I thought about my melody. I thought about my story. I thought about my song. I thought about the fact that a few weeks ago when Christian spoke, he landed on the fact that we have to sing. Now I begin to think about the melody of suffering across the earth and the melody of suffering throughout human, human history is not unique to just one people or one place. It is a universal song. In fact, there's no people group, no place on earth, no professional achievement, socioeconomic status that self-protects us from the grip of human suffering. There is no era in human history that has not been marked in some way by human suffering. And in light of that, the statement rings true that misery indeed does love company. The living room of suffering may in fact be the very place that we find the most fellowship with one another. You see, we've not all experienced the same measures of success in this room. The truth of the matter is, if you've uh, started a company and sold it for a billion dollars, I can applaud you and celebrate with you and even approach you to try to fund my nonprofit. Uh, (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, I've never had that kind of experience. I've never deposited a, a multi-million dollar check. I think of one of my good friends who signed with the NFL and his first deal was, was uh, for $50 million, and I'm sitting with him I'm like, bro, what did it feel like? What did it feel like? <laughs> like when you got that first check and made that first deposit, like how, what's that like? When we walk in a room and we boast in our successes, uh, it's, it's only going to attract a small group of people. But when we walk in the room and we open with, man, my life was a wreck. All of us can identify and connect on the pain point of our suffering and our weakness, because no matter what you've done in life, we have all experienced pain. It binds us, it connects us. And while there's been many thoughts about why we've all experienced this pain, I want to offer one that's not new, one that's already been said, but I'll I'll repeat it. Three thoughts. First, the fall of man. And this is super deep theologically, but there's a scripture that really explains why we all experience suffering, and it's men are stupid. That's actually in the Bible. Every man is stupid and without knowledge is what Jeremiah said. Now, my feminist friends, don't get too super excited. We want to use male and female in the the Bible here. So it applies to the women too. All men and women are stupid. In other words, there is suffering that happens in our lives due to stupid decisions that we make. It's true. In fact, 1 Peter 4, 15 says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a a busybody in other people's matters. In other words, if you're talking gossip and junk about other people and you get smacked in the face, don't yell, oh, I'm being beat. You were being stupid. You up in somebody else's business. Well, I'm suffering. I'm in jail. I'm in prison. Oh, woe is me. And he's like, if you suffer as a thief or as a murderer or an evildoer, you're simply suffering in the bed that you made. Now, that's not popular. I was on the streets, I do a lot of street ministry, I've done gang intervention for years. I was on the street during a uh, 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 BLM protest and I had a young black man and he's like, F the police, blah, 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 blah. And I knew this cat, the moment I saw him, I've seen a million of this guy. I'm seeing him and I know what he does for a living. He's got on a hoodie, he's got his hands in here, I know he is strapped up, he had a gun, he had some baggies back here. I know, I know what, how you make your living. So he's out here wanting justice, Legally wanting the law enforcement to act justly, but I'm like, so bro, um, how do you make your living? Ah, well, you know, I do what I do, bro. You know, I gotta make moves out here. So, you don't leave legally, you don't live legally, but yet you're complaining about the suffering you're experiencing from people whose job is to help you live legally. Ah, oh, that was really controversial for Portland. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's the Bible. The truth of the matter is there's, there's just suffering and unjust suffering. Yes. And when you live in stupidity and you experience the suffering from your choices, God is just to give you what you've just chosen. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. But another form of how we suffer is the rage of Satan. Now, let me qualify what I just said. There's, I'm the justice and mercy fellow, so we can have lots of conversations about institutional racism and systemic injustice and all the way society has contributed to put young black men in a position to make a living in the underground economy, but that's not the message today. I need you to understand that there is a foe beyond that that empowers the wickedness in the choices that we make that, are, that lead us into lifestyles of sin, right? And that's the rage of Satan. He hates you. He hates me. He is nothing but hate. There's no one he likes. He doesn't like himself. He doesn't like his demons. The demons don't like themselves. And so, 1 Peter 5, 8 encourages us. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood all over the world. Satan causes suffering. And when we are in our suffering, one of the gravest and most bold tricks of the enemy is to make you and I believe that we're the only one. Well, I'm the only one going through this. Nobody understands. We self-isolate, we get into isolation, and we suffer in an undignified way because we suffer alone. We give in to this this cocoon of lies that Satan swirls around us to make us believe that what we're going through, nobody else has ever gone through, and nobody cares, and get us into this place of depression and suicidal thoughts and all these different things. He says, no, 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 know that these sufferings are not unique to you. In fact, there are people all over the world who are experiencing this, and there's an enemy that's seeking to take you out. If he can't take you out, he wants to get you in a position to take yourself out. But a third reason for suffering is the plan and the glory of God. First Peter 2.19, it says, for this is acceptable. If for the sake of conscience toward God, anyone endures griefs, suffering unjustly, for what kind of credit is it if sinning and being struck you shall endure? But if you shall endure doing good and suffering, this is commendable before God. Again, Peter makes the same distinction, two types of suffering, suffering because of sin and the fall of men and the rage of Satan, or suffering because of the plan of God, which is also the rage of Satan and the plan of God. In other words, he says, why should you receive a condemnation, uh, uh, or a a commendation rather, if you have made bad choices and you're suffering because of evil? Well, that's your choices, but, but it is commendable if you are righteous, you're pursuing righteousness, you're pursuing the ways of God, you're pursuing holiness, you wanna know Jesus more. It is commendable if you bear up under just suffering because then you're conscious of God and you're becoming like him. First Peter 4.12 says this, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the, fire, the fiery trial, which is, here's the why, Here's the answer to the why question. Why is this happening to me? Why have I had to go through this? Why am I going through this now? Why will I have trouble? He says right here, the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. There's a reason why we're going through what we're going through. There's something that God is after And 1 Peter 5, verse 10 through 11 says it this way. But may the grace of God, may the God of all grace who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. You gotta understand, you are called to something and that something that you're called to is the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. Oh, you gotta understand, there is something glorious beyond what we have seen and tasted and felt in our own little meager finite human existence. There is a realm of beauty and majesty and glory. Heaven, eternity is our home. This is our inheritance in our portion. Right now, the best and most beautiful thing that we can behold with our eyes on this side of heaven in comparison to the glory to which we are called. Let me finish this verse though. He says, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, everybody say perfect, Perfect. establish, establish, strengthen, and settle you to him, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Perfect to perfect us. Now this, this causes controversy because it's, it's easy for us to say, well, no one's perfect. All of us have sinned. Nobody's perfect. And, and to look down on the failures and the imperfections of the church and to believe that theologically it's completely impossible for us to be perfect. So therefore we don't strive for perfection. And yet the Lord says, be holy as I am holy. In fact, the, the apostles write many times the perfecting of the saints. I am not perfect. You are not perfect. But we are on a journey towards perfection. According to this, God is sanctifying us. He is transforming us. He is delivering us. He is changing us. He is making us into a more perfect way that we would be fully formed, that Christ would be fully formed in us, that we would walk in a maturity and that we would actually get to a place of of a fullness of growth in Christ to the measure with which we can on this side of heaven. I don't think it's wrong to pursue holy perfection. I think that this verse, after you have suffered a while, perfect, God wants to use suffering to purify and perfect us. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it says buy gold refined in the fire. Now, I, again, living in a predominantly black community, dealing with a lot of young guys who wanna be rappers, and they got, there's this thing kind of in hip hop culture now where where, you know a rapper will go on a radio show and they have this diamond tester and they put it up on your chain to see if it's real. And it beeps if it's real. You see, jewelers can, can fool you and give you fool's gold and cubic zirconium, but gold, that has been refined in the fire. He says, buy from me gold purified in the fire. A diamond becomes a diamond through pressure. And the most beautiful diamonds get cut. Oh, we could preach off that for just a second. (laughs) You have to understand, he says, the trials are coming because I want to perfect you. I want to establish you. I think of my marriage. My marriage was all fun and games and fluffy and and, and butterflies and feeling good. And, oh, do I smell good? And, girl, you look good. It was all those things. But it was when the trials came. That our love went from this, it went from this, like, ah, yeah, to, oh, no, we don't have the fuzzies. We, we have to make a choice right now. Am I going to stay in this? Am, are we going to stay together through the storm? Uh, God says, I'm going to establish a deeper love through the trial. Yeah. It's when you've walked through some things. He says, to strengthen you. When we come out on the other side of suffering, there's a strength that gets in us. And then he says to settle you. Look, when you've been settled, when your foundations have been tested, when you've walked through a global pandemic, when you've walked through a contentious election year, when you've, after you've walked through whatever deconstruction you're going through, God says, no, I want you to come out through the trial settled. Suffering is the crucible of heaven. Suffering is the potter's will. You say, God, I want your hand on my life. He says, okay, I'll lay my hand on you. In fact, the prophet John the Baptist said, there is one who is coming. I baptize you with water, but there's one who's coming who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, in charismatic Pentecostal circles, which I do navigate through some of those, a lot of times you say that and people get really excited. Ah, the fire of the Holy Spirit, yeah! (laughs) No, 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 no. Jesus, as he was approaching the cross, says, oh, that I've come to baptize the world in fire and I wish that it were already kindled. He knew that the fire of testing and trouble was what he himself was coming to inaugurate and that that would mean in order for a purified people in a new humanity to emerge in his likeness they too would must they too must pass through those fires and this is what god has done in my story this is what god has done in in and through the hebraic journey biblically which is what caused a synergy or a connection point between the Jewish people and the African diaspora. The Jewish scattering and enslavement uh, uh, in, in Egypt in the, the historic transatlantic slave trade and the African diaspora across the world. Again, we can't identify necessarily with, every, with each other's successes, but the Jewish people can see themselves within our story and we have always historically saw, our, seen ourselves within their story. That's why if you look at photos of many of the marches of Dr. King, you never see him standing on the street. You rarely see him without him standing with a Jewish rabbi. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel was one of his closest friends. The Jewish community funded The black civil rights movement in many cities, in a lot of cities they shared communities and because Jewish people could assimilate to the majority culture easier by dyeing your hair or, or, or changing some things, facial hair, whatever, black people could not assimilate but they were treated the same. So Jewish people identified and walked with the black community. And that's why you can hardly ride through a black community today without finding little uh, missionary Baptist and Church of God in Christ and uh, African-American, African Methodist Episcopal churches that have uh, uh, names like Mount Carmel, New Mount Zion, New Jerusalem Baptist Church, Mount Sinai, Mount Olivet, Overcoming Church of God in Christ, New Hope. The story of the exodus and the exilic, uh, uh, the exodus and the exile became our, our, our form of theology and it permeates our songs, our understanding of Jesus, the way we've received him. And so we became a people of lament and praise. In fact, Tim Mackey beautifully connected us to finding patterns in the Bible like a beautiful, beautiful melody. And the melody and the patterns between the Jewish journey and diaspora, uh, out of slavery into the promised land, directly uh, uh, there's a melody and a pattern within their journey that parallels our story. Now, uh, so we became a, pimple of, a people of lament and praise, and our theology became a theology, meaning in the black tradition, of exodus and exile. In other words, our our teaching, preaching, and songs were typically filled with this thought, we started at suffering, started, started at bondage, and so most sermons that you hear in the historic black tradition are about coming out of bondage and into promise. That was the starting point. Or we processed the, the Bible through the lens of exile, that we are strangers in a foreign land, sojourners just passing through. And so out of that, uh, we, the, the church became the place of, of corporate lament and suffering and corporate victory and praise. So every Sunday was highly anticipated. In fact, the theologian uh, uh, James Cone said this, after being treated as things for six days of the week, black folk went to church on Sunday in order to affirm and experience another definition of their humanity. There, everybody became somebody and there were no second class people at Macedonia. He's talking about Macedonia, African Methodist Episcopal Church, and I can, I can recall this. I mean, in fact, this explains some of the differences between what we look like in this room today and what some of the black churches on the other side of Portland look like in this room today. Like in here, I'm, I'm up here with, with tennis shoes on, you know, I'm looking at uh, hoodies and beanies and all this stuff. And I guarantee you at some black church across town, you will find the pulpit filled with everybody and nice dresses and hats and suits and ties and cuff links. And, and, and there was this, this sense of when you are in the, are in the servant class. You don't have access to a suit and tie through the week because your occupation uh, doesn't afford you that type of dignity. And so therefore when you're a janitor and you're scrubbing or or you're out in the field picking cotton and you've, you've been in the heat all day and you got one nice suit so on Sunday you're gonna bring God your Sunday best. You might not have anything else but when you walk through the front doors of the church, I can't tell if you're the CEO or if you've just scrubbed toilets with a toothbrush all week. Suddenly there was a dignity that came in the presence of God. This was your one opportunity. Because God's no respecter of persons. So that's why we see in the protest of the 60s, we can see a picture of, uh, uh, of the people dressed in suits and ties. Well, you might say, well, that was just how everybody dressed in the 60s. No, no, no. You have to understand. This was very intentional. We're going to go and we're going we're gonna to resist, but we're going to resist in beauty and dignity. We might not have all the education, but we can at least look like it. And what was also interesting about this, this uh, place of level ground in the presence of God is that's how our services were run. In fact, the, various, the, the very first part of the church service is the testimony service, where everybody has a voice to share stories of what they have overcome throughout the week, because everybody had experienced suffering. So the church is a place of encouragement. So come in, and we're going to start the service by not only expressing our lament, but corporately celebrating victory and overcoming. You've heard this idea. Maybe you hear um, it's not so prevalent in majority culture, where you, you don't hear about another white person getting promoted and go, we made it. What? It's, it's very kind of individualistic, right? This week, Ketanji uh, Brown Jackson was, uh, or Jackson, it's Ketanji Brown Jackson, uh, the first African Americans uh, installed into the Supreme Court. And regardless of what you believe about her positions or don't believe, the truth of the matter is there was mass celebration. We did it, we're in the Supreme Court now. And why is that? It it comes from a people that came out of a culture of oppression and suffering, and we learned that one victory anywhere is a victory for everybody everywhere. And that's actually a kingdom principle. Denominationally, don't you understand that the weakest part of the body makes all the body weak? Somehow we've, we've lost that at a macro scale. So black theology actually started to recover that and it was part of the social fabric. So at the beginning of a church service, the service would start with testimony time. And testimony time was our praise and worship time. Rather than 30 minutes of a band up here singing, it was 30 minutes with nobody on the stage and the mic is open, the floor is open, and that's where the spontaneity, that's where the jazz of the melody would begin. A mother would get up and talk about, last week I was died, uh, 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 last year I was diagnosed with cancer. And the doctor gave me two days to live. It was cancer of my throat. He said I wouldn't walk again. He said, I wouldn't talk again, but I'm here, and I got a song in my spirit. And next thing you know, she would bust out in a song, and we might not have ever heard the song before, but she would sing two or three phrases, and by the end of it, everybody's singing in unison and clapping with her. She would teach us the song, and the whole church became the choir. We would all enter into her lament, and then enter into her victory. And so I usually don't even start sermons without singing because when you hear a lot of black preachers begin to preach, they will start their sermons with a song and end their sermons with a song. And so I just figured before I do that, maybe I could teach you guys a song this morning. In fact, I mean, Christian, a few weeks ago, he says, one of the ways to get through suffering is sing a song. So Christian, would you help me? Can we, can we, can we have Christian just, maybe, yeah, yeah, so so there's a song, In This World You Will Have Trouble. There's lots of songs in the, in the archives of how we've gotten over and how we've gotten through with the song of the Lord. So, so this song, <clears throat> this song, it's just a cappella. It goes, trouble in my way, trouble in my way. I have to cry sometimes. I have to cry sometimes. Trouble in my way, y'all my way. I have to cry sometimes. I I have have to cry cry sometimes. Sometimes. I lay awake at night. I lay awake at night. But that's all right. That's all right. Because I know that Jesus, Jesus, he he will fix it after a while. After a while. Now, wait, wait. Now, you got to see the theology in this song. There's a lament. Trouble is in my way. In this world, you will have trouble. I lay awake at night. I have nightmares and dreams, anxiety. I can't sleep because of my trouble. But I know this thing. Jesus is going to fix it after a while. In fact, my grandmama used to say he may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. See, there, there's something, there's something about trouble. Now, see, I was just I was just laying the foundation, we're gonna sing that again. Trouble in my way. Trouble in my way. I have to cry sometime. I have to, to
0: cry, cry sometime.
1: sometimes. Trouble in my way. Oh. in
0: my way.
1: Have to cry sometimes.
0: I have to cry sometimes.
1: I lay awake at night. I lay awake night. But that's alright. That's alright. I know that, Jesus Jesus, Jesus, I know that Jesus, 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 he will fix it. I know that Jesus, Jesus, he will fix it. I know that Jesus, Jesus, he will fix it. After a while. We're just going to go back. I know that Jesus,
0: Jesus, Jesus, he will fix
1: it. Stand up. I know that Jesus,
0: Jesus, He will fix it.
1: He did it for my mother.
0: Jesus, He will fix it.
1: He did it for my father.
0: Jesus, He will fix it.
1: He did it for my brother. Jesus,
0: He will fix if it. If He can
1: do it for me, Jesus, He will fix. He it. can do it for you, Jesus, He will fix. He it. can do it for us, Jesus, He, he will fix. It. After a while, after a while come on, give God a hand, clap to prayer. Thank you You can be seated, but you don't have to. The melody of the song. See, this is not just my inheritance, but the, the scripture in Romans that we read before. It says that we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ, which means that way of lament and praise, that song is not just my song or my people's song. Once you have entered into the body of Christ in the family of God, this is a family song and a family way of processing through suffering. This is your inheritance now. You see what we just did, the spontaneity, the improv at the end, that's the foundation of rap and and blues. And then we would go for an hour. I'm serious. That song would spawn 20 other songs and testimonies and and, and verses that were being written in real time as they were being sung. And the whole crowd would just catch on and there's improv and there's all these different things. That was the original rapping. But this is now the song of the nations because we've all endured suffering. Now I quoted James Cone earlier, which for anybody who's a theologian, that may, pa- that may cause problems because Cone is known for founding what is called Black Liberation Theology and a lot of people are afraid of Black Liberation Theology. I don't fully agree with all of Black Liberation Theology for a few reasons, I don't have time to go through it, but there is some gold in the theological traditions that James Cone began to highlight and one of those is namely this. He says that to analyze the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must do it in light of oppressed blacks so they will see the gospel as inseparable from their humiliated condition and bestow on them the necessary power to break the chains of oppression. His hermeneutical principle or exegesis of scriptures was that we must understand the revelation of God in Christ, as the liberator for the oppressed. He's many things. Christ has many names, but one of the revelations of Christ that people of the African diaspora understand perhaps better than any other people group on the earth is that in slavery, we met Jesus as the great emancipator. We might not know Jesus as the one who gives us Abundance of financial wealth, but we know him as King, who is a righteous judge who sets his people free. In whatever form Jesus met you, the the, the most in in the most significant way in which he's met you in your own story in history, that is the way that you will present him the most. If you are a drug addict. And he frees you from your addiction, then most likely when you are sharing your evangelistic story, you are going to express him as the one who sets you free from addiction. You're going to present him in that revelation. If you know him as father, if that's the the wound that he healed and, and the way that he began to come to you and become real and incarnate to you, that is the way in which you will present him. And so James says, James Cone said this. The heart of the Christian faith is the cross of Jesus, the one who shed his blood as the crucified victim in Jerusalem. And no one can understand this Jesus and the saving power of his blood without seeing him through the experience of crucified peoples today. In other words, now, Cone would argue that it is impossible for anyone anywhere to see Jesus unless they understand him through the black experience. I might push back on that in some ways, but I agree with the fact that we cannot see Jesus at all until we have the capacity to see him together through the experience of all people. In other words, I have to understand that there's a revelation of Jesus that Chinese people have that I don't have. Because experientially in their suffering, There's some things that they walk through that I've not walked through, and there's some things that they understand about Jesus and his character that only they can get and understand. And so therefore, I need to be united with my Chinese brothers and sisters in the persecuted church of China so that I can understand that aspect of who God is. So throughout history, we experienced him in both suffering and victory, and this is what is considered part of the fullness of the kerygma. Kerygma is a Greek word that really means proclamation, the preaching of the gospel of Christ, especially in the manner of the early church. What was the kerygma k- k- kerygma-ta, kerygmata of, the, of, the, of the early church? It was that they embodied Jesus, not only in their preaching uh, with the words, but in their physical uh, incarnation of how they walked out, they were preaching the gospel. Stephen was preaching the gospel as he was being killed. The apostolic road is, is wrought, is paved with suffering. That's why in Philippians it says, Philippians 3 We have no confidence in the flesh. I'm going to summarize this and speed it up. We have no confidence in the flesh. Suffering will ruin your confidence in the flesh. When you think you're all strong and you got it all together, God says, boop, let's throw a little suffering in there. You'll realize how weak you are. And he says in verse 7, this is after Paul has, has run down his resume of his standing as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Ethnically, he was in the highest class. Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Uh, uh, educationally, he was the most educated. Concerning zeal, nobody was more zealous than him. And he says, yet, yeah, you know what? I count all of these things as rubbish. In verse eight, I count these things as lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Losing the stuff you care about is a form of suffering. And he says, I've done that. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, but a, a righteousness which is from God by faith. That I may know him. I may gnosko. I may intimately know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death so that by any means I can attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's going, I, I'm not content with knowing about God just by reading the stories of what he's done and what he went through. I'm not content with with just being a messenger. I want to experience what he experienced. And I want to enter the fellowship of suffering. What a fellowship, what a joy divide, leaning on the everlasting arms. You cannot know the fellowship of those who have entered and walked the apostolic road and paved the pathway of faith uh, that we stand on today unless you enter into the same road and walk the same path that they have walked. And there's a place of intimacy in God that's only obtained through doing what Jesus did, which is be the suffering servant. So therefore, in verse 17 of Philippians 3, he says, brethren, join in following my example and note those, note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. There's that melody again. There's a pattern of people who have walked through history and people, groups who have walked through history of suffering. And he says, this is your pattern for walking like Christ. Note them and follow them. In my own story, it was Sunday, March 30th, 2003. I was a senior in college. And that Sunday I was suffering bad. I was suffering because my rent was due on April 1st. Some people are like that sounds serious that was supposed to be funny but i'm sorry <laughs> sorry I, I didn't sell that one well I, it was okay i was a senior in college my rent was due and i had worked all week but you know my paycheck was like on april 7th but it, Rent was due April 1st. So I'm on the phone with my mom on a Sunday afternoon, like, hey, ma, rent's due. I don't know what I'm going to do. Can you help your brother out, you know? And she's she's like, well, son, things are actually tight here at home this week. But I feel like there's going to be a breakthrough by the end of the week. And I'm like, sweet. Well, you call the brother when that breakthrough comes. Because (laughs) I was late last month, and I think I'm going to be late again. And uh, this is not a good look. And so we're talking, and as we're talking, she says, yes, son, uh, my book is almost finished. I'm like, what? My whole life, she had written a book every Saturday. I thought this is what every mom does. You wake up, (laughs) you eat pancakes, you go in the living room and watch cartoons. And then mom, you watch cartoons until mom yells at you and tells you to get off the TV and go clean your room. Then you go out and do some random errands. And then you come back and everybody's mother goes into their little study or, 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 or patio or whatever, and writes, because that's what she had done my whole life. She would surround herself with a, th- a thesaurus and a bunch of stuff, and she was just writing. And so, when I got old enough to actually notice that other people's moms don't necessarily do this, I was like, so mom, what, what are you doing? And she's like, I'm writing a book. I'm like, sweet, well, you've been writing this book a long time. She says, yeah, it won't be published until after I die. I'm like, oh, sweet. Well, I'm going out, (laughs) you know, I didn't ask questions. So on March 30th, 2003, I'm on the phone with her. And she's like, son, my book is almost published. Or she says almost finished. And I was like, oh, word? I thought you said it wouldn't be published till after you die. And she goes, well, it's almost finished. Two days later. April Fool's Day. Two days after that, I get a phone call. Rude. Six in the morning. I was in college. I didn't go to sleep until like three. <laughs> Six in the morning. It's my mom's pastor. Hey Johnson. Yeah. It's Pastor Moss. It's your mother. She she didn't wake up. I said what? What time is it, Pastor Moss? It's 6 a.m. Why are you calling me? April Fool's was two days ago. This This is rude. And I hung up on him. I thought he was joking. Like, what? A few seconds later, the phone rings again. It's my dad. Jonathan, it's your mother. The Lord has taken her from us. I need you to get home, son. He gives and he takes away. I need you to come. He's taken her from us. Get here. This whale, this guttural, suddenly just the reality. My mom, my best friend, she's 48 years old. She's strong. She was that cool mother, that, mo- that mom that when we went out in public, she looked like she was 20. And so everybody didn't know if she was my mom or my sister. She was in perfect health. What? what? Why? What? Where? what? Is, is this real? And it's grown in me. It was a six-hour ride home, and eventually I get to my hometown, and, and there's our house is filled with friends and family and pastors and people sitting around and waiting to receive me when I walk in the house. And at this point, I'm angry. I'm like, what are you doing here? Haven't you read the Bible? The Bible says that he has cast out demons, healed the sick, and raised the dead. She's dead. You're saying she's dead. Why aren't you there praying for her to be standing up? Why are you sitting around mourning? Let's go. Where is she? Take me to her. They put me in the car in my rage and in my grief, and they drove me to the hospital and the hospital somehow uh, uh, let me into the morgue and they pulled out the cooler, the refrigerator where they put the, the bodies that get brought in and there she is with her hair up in a bun and her favorite T-shirt that she always slept in just looking like she was asleep, still with her arm like this, just sleep in a sleep position. And I'm like, what are you doing, mom? Why are you acting? Why are you pl- Just stand up, what's wrong with you? Then I put my hand on her and I realized she was cold to the touch. And I'm like, nah, nah, this, this, this ain't real. And I heard the Lord say, you stand in the gap between life and death for your mother. And I was going, God, okay all right, you told me to stand in the gap. This is not my idea. This is your idea. She's gone too soon. You said that you would raise the dead. So I refuse to eat or sleep until she stands up. And so me and my girlfriend, who's now my wife, my girlfriend at the time and my 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 mother's best friend and the pastor were in the morgue in that room for three hours praying. And I had every scripture about Jesus raising the dead, every scripture about Elijah raising the dead. And, I, and I'm stretching out over her and doing all the biblical stuff and saying, God, you said this. And I command this body to stand up. God released life back into her. And then eventually security knocked on the door and they said, you know what? You got to leave. We, I know you're grieving, but we, you know, we just, we got to shut this down. In full confidence, I went home that night. I'm like, all right, I told you, God, I'm not sleeping. I will not eat until she stands up. So I, I slept with the phone right here beside me waiting. I was already, it was done deal in my mind. It was done. I'm going, okay, the, the hospital's going to call me. I got worried for a second because they put them in these like containers. And I'm like, maybe how's she going to get out once she wakes up? And she's like banging in there. Well, God, if you raise her up, I guess you'll make sure somebody comes in and hears her and lets her out. I'm like having a dialogue with God. And then all of a sudden, I kid you not, I see the popcorn ceiling in my room open up. And I saw my mom in the spirit ascending into this realm of inexpressible glory. And she began to worship and dance and spin. And she was worshiping with everything and leaping like a gazelle. And she turned to me and she says, with this huge smile on her face, son, I've always wanted to dance like this. And she continues to leap and worship and spin in a realm called glory. I don't have all the theological nuances of where this realm is. I just know what I saw. And then I heard the Lord turn to me and he said, turn toward her and say, Robin, your youngest son has asked me to allow you to return to your body and I can do that and there will be much fruit in the earth, even global acclaim, or you can come with me and those who witness this moment will go further in one lifetime, than you, will go further than you could have ever gone in one lifetime. All of a sudden she just continued to worship beyond my view Then the Lord turned his face towards me and he said, you see, son, your mother has chosen to become a seed in my garden. And unless a seed falls into the ground and withers away, it cannot bear fruit. But when it does, it brings multiplication and great glory. It closed up and I thought God had not answered my prayer for a second because it seemed like unanswered prayer. We talked about unanswered prayer. It seemed like that wasn't the answer to the prayer that I wanted to no, know. I, I, I know she's alive. I just saw her with my own eyes in the spirit. That's great, God. But no, I wanted her here. That, didn't, that answer did not assuage my, my, my grief. But, but on the inside, there was something that happened. All of a sudden, I began to weep and wail like I've never weeped and wailed before. And I was, it was this guttural groan, this and as i was screaming another voice came out of my mouth and it was the book of psalms i kid you not i heard the holy spirit begin to go great and marvelous are you O god you are matchless in the heavens. You cloak yourself in light. There is no one like you. You who hold the seven lamps and the stars in your hands. You who hold the crowns uh, uh, of many nations and are crowned with many crowns. I was in deep darkness, yet you rescue me. I guarantee you in a moment, there's no time in the spirit, but in a split second, it was as if the Holy Spirit quoted the entire book of Psalms. As I was groaning, I heard it with my ears as I could also hear my groan. And suddenly this scripture in Romans 8 became a reality. Romans 8. Hope that is seen is not hope at all. For who hopes for what he can see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And then the next scripture that says... Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. I'm here to tell you. He who searches the hearts and minds knows what the spirit of the mind of the spirit is. And he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. There are times in our suffering when we pray according to our will and we pray according to what we think the outcome could be, should be, because that's all we have the capacity to do. But when we get to that place of utter brokenness in the depths of our suffering, that's when the spirit takes over and reaches for a hope and a help that's higher than ourselves. Do you know that night, I know you may, I've never experienced anything like this, I'm here to tell you, that night as I was groaning, a smell filled our house, an aroma. And when I smelled it, I thought someone was spraying like perfume, but there was nobody in the room, so I opened the door and tried to walk to the living room where my dad was on the couch weeping. And before I could get to the living room to ask if he could smell it, the smell had filled the whole house and my aunt, who was staying, and my uncle, who had just gotten in town, at three something in the morning came out of the room worshiping. Everybody came out of the room worshiping as the presence of God filled our house. My dad, smelled the smell and instantly he began rejoicing and saying, I'm healed, I'm healed. My dad, who had been a diabetic for 40 years, he felt a biological change in his body. He had had to take insulin multiple times a day and all these different things in a moment. I kid you not. He knew that he was healed and he never took another insulin shot for the rest of his life for another 40 years. You need to to know That God is a God who is present with us in our weakness and in our suffering. As I begin to bring this to a close, I know this is a long sermon today, but as I bring this to a close, I want to leave you with a few points. Practically, for dignified suffering. And point number one is this. We see it in 1 Peter 3.8. It says, Be single-minded, sympathetic, loving as brothers, tender-hearted and humble, not repaying evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, blessing, because to this you were called so that you should inherit blessing. The first key to suffering with dignity is blessing. It says the one desiring To love life, to see good days, let him keep the tongue from evil and the lips not to speak deceit. Let him turn away. Let him do good. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. When you're in your suffering, you can say some wild things. Nobody loves me. I don't love me. God is not good. You can allow Satan to get in your mouth. You can talk evil about the person who's persecuting you or the situation at hand or the people who are responsible for it. You must earnestly guard your mouth because Satan is the accuser of the brethren. The first thing he's going to do is get in your mouth and get you accusing God, accusing yourself and accusing others. Guard your mouth. Bless your enemies and guard your mouth. Speak out of faith and not fear. Be zealous for which is good, for what is good. This is the the third point, be zealous for good. If you're hurting, find out someone that you can serve. Forgive. Forgive. One of the things that gave the African diaspora power to overcome was that God strengthened us to be a people of forgiveness. One of the greatest examples of that is seen in a video that I'm gonna end on in just a moment. But before I do, two more points. Don't quit, be renewed and fix your eyes. Do not quit in the midst of your challenges and your suffering, persevere, be renewed. This scripture, 2 Corinthians says, therefore we do not lose heart, 2 Corinthians 4. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary affliction is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which we can see, we fix our eyes. Everybody say, fix our eyes, fix our eyes. on the things which are not seen. Because those things are eternal. God wants to fix our eyes today. He wants to give us grace to endure what we're going through by allowing us to have clear vision for what we're going to.